Welcome to One on One. I'm Gloria Moraga. Today's episode features author Patricia Razor Divlison. Her book is titled Another Night on the City Streets Stories from the Police Blotter. You could say that author is Pat's third career. She's also been an entertainer, specifically a hula dancer and a cop. And not just a cop. She was the first female deputy sheriff in Sacramento County, California. in the world did you become a sheriff's deputy? I was a single parent with four children to raise and I stumbled into store security and as a result of that I met deputy sheriffs and city police officers in Sacramento and they told me that I should seek out a law enforcement career since I seem to be pretty adept at spotting bad guys. Started out as a clerk and then moved up into store security. So when a test came up, one of the officers that was working part-time in our store came and told me they're going to let a test. And I said, what for? And they said, jail matron. I went, oh no, I don't want to be a jail matron. At that particular time, which was 1965, uh, there were no female officers in Sacramento. The Sheriff's Department had three juvenile officers that were female, but that was it. The only other females were jail matrons. So this officer told me, he says, you're an idiot. You've got four children to support. What you're doing now, you don't have any benefits. If you take this job, not only will you have benefits and a good salary, it's only a matter of time before they have female officers. He says, that's the way it's going. He talked me into it. And I took the test and became a jail matron. And four years later, lo and behold, they made female officers and I became one of them. Since the test for for matrons was very similar to the test for police officers, for deputy sheriffs, I should say, uh, all I had to do was pass the academy and I was in and I did. So So did you go train at the academy? Yes, I did. I went to the academy. I graduated from the academy, became a deputy sheriff. A year later, because of the time, my time in grade, I took the test for sergeant and made sergeant. How many women were there in the academy? Oh, there were only three in the academy when I went. And then the next academy came up. There were three more, uh, maybe a couple more. It was very, very uh, small amounts. And after I became a sergeant and was attached to the training bureau, then they opened a women's facility down in Elk Grove. They had to staff it. So there was a one-of-a-kind academy. There were 26 women, I think it was, and eight men in that particular academy class. 20 of the women graduated and six of the men graduated. And that was the only time in the history of the Sheriff's Department that they ever had more women than men in the academy class. How was it being one of the, the first women? Well, the truth of the matter is it was easier in public than it was at work. Because at first it was, and it wasn't the male officer's fault that they, they didn't feel comfortable with us. Because we had to wear two-inch slip-on high heels, stockings, a skirt, and our guns were in purses, which were strapped to our shoulder. And uh, I can see now how these officers wouldn't have wanted any of this as a partner in squad car. So we, a total of six different court cases we sued, the women did, six different times for six different things to get decent shoes, trousers, pants instead of skirts, get rid of the uh, stockings, get rid of the purse, and get rid of the guns with a little two and a half inch barrel. So none of these cases ever went to court. 
the county or the sheriff conceded each one of them. But we had to tediously do this. In fact, I have it documented at home in a, in a, a little excerpt because uh, it's been included in the uh, Sheriff's Department Museum. Yeah, it, uh, it was very difficult for the women at first. How was it in the squad car? Are you on the night shift or? I worked all the different shifts. The only squad car work I did was much later in my career and uh, very briefly. Mostly it, I chose not to go into patrol. I did walk a beat at Florence Center at one time during the Christmas holidays. Yes. How and was that? That was kind of fun, actually. It was almost like being back in store security again. But uh, yeah, that was uh, most of my career. I was working in the academy or in the jail system and in the court system, that too, and just briefly in patrol. Sheriff's Department allowed you to work part-time for things like the high school dances and all, and I've done that. Do you think of yourself as a trailblazer or a feminist that broke barriers for other women? I wouldn't use the term feminist. I think that us as a group, our first women that were in there, did kind of blaze a trail. I did find that the most valuable assignment that I had was the training bureau, because at that particular time, I had an opportunity to make certain changes by having direct access to the sheriff himself. You'd walk into his office and talk with him, you know, and do certain things. And uh, I guess you'd call it kind of a trailblazer. I was once told by a representative from the district attorney's office that it was pointless to seek certain employment within the, the law enforcement system because they would never, quote, never make a woman a supervisor over men. Well, the following year I made sergeant and I was supervising both men and women. So <laughs> that kind of blew that shot. <laughs> yeah, I was the first woman to make sergeant off of a, a promotional list. There was a female sergeant who made sergeant as a grandfathered position because she had been a matron. She was the only matron sergeant. So when they discontinued the matron position and had the female deputy sheriffs, she was grandfathered in as a female sergeant. But I'm the only one that made it off a promotional list. I was the first. What's your thought about police today and things that they do? I have a great deal of apprehension about the job in this day and age. I think things have changed so much out there. And you got to remember, it's been quite a while since I retired. At the time that I retired, we didn't have computers in the car. We didn't use computers at all, as a matter of fact. And there were no iPhones and that sort of thing, you know. So, yeah, it would be difficult for me to really make too much of an opinion because I think that the whole mindset between law enforcement and the public is different now. And um, But not the public in general, but the bad guys. At one time, if you treated your arrested person, your arrestee, in a <coughs> civil manner, they generally responded in, in so... And then if they didn't, you could always escalate your, your response to, to cope with the, with the situation. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, there are people out there who just go out and shoot people just to, to say they did, mm-hmm. including cops. I mean, it seems to be some kind of badge of honor among some people to kill a cop. It's a whole new ball game out there, I think. It's difficult now. Yeah, I think it's very difficult for officers now. People have a tendency to make something out of nothing nowadays, including the media. I'm sorry, but... I don't have a lot of nice things to say about some of the media, some of the media. 
I mean, I went to journalism school. I, I, I don't know what happened because that's not what you're taught in journalism no. school. Nowadays, too, they don't report the news. They're more commentators. They say what they think the public wants to hear mm-hmm. as opposed to the truth. Mm-hmm. And so I, I rarely watch the news anymore yeah. for that reason. What's your thought? And you've said this to me uh, about communications now with all the gadgets, the phones, the the cameras, the podcasts, the videos, the YouTube. I don't know if you know how YouTube's just. I choose to opt out. <laughs> In all honesty, my only cell phone is an old flip phone. When I get home, I shut it off. We have a, a landline, which we use at home. My cell phone. My cell phone number is only shared with close friends and family. My doctor doesn't have my cell phone number. My dentist doesn't have it. Uh, my CPA doesn't have it because I don't use it as except as an emergency item. When I'm traveling in my car, if I have a flat, an accident, I want to be able to communicate it. My phone makes a call and it receives one and that's all it does. That's how we. St- that's how it all started. It yeah. started with, the, oh, this will be great for emergencies. Yes, and that's and what, now it's like become uh, th- our hand, the third hand. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's really crazy that, that people don't talk to each other anymore. No, in fact, I've been to a restaurant and seen a couple sitting at a table, and instead of talking to each other, they're each on their cell phone. And they don't say two words to each other almost through the whole meal. Until the food gets there, then they're eating with one hand and looking at the thing with the other. So I am a self-professed computer dinosaur. Through this all, you are doing the trailblazing thing. Looks are like it, yeah. someone that we can all look up to. You are also mom. How many children were you raising at the same time? There were four at the time. So tell me about your your family life, and and then we're going to go into the writing. Well, I was a divorced mother with four children. When I became a deputy, my youngest child was five years old. I had already been single since she was six months old. She was the youngest one. Their father had left the state, and I had no financial assistance. So it was a matter of finding a job is all. And I started working as a clerk in the department store, went from that to security, and then from security into the church department. I eventually took a couple of years college uh, law enforcement uh, degree, but never made a degree. I just had two years of college. And well, at the time, my mother was living with me. She was also a widow. So we joined households. She became the the stay-at-home mom. I became the breadwinner. She took care of all the bills. I handed her my paycheck when I got home. It worked out fine. My favorite working time is what they call swing shift, which would be from about 3 o'clock in the afternoon to midnight. But I couldn't work those hours and be a mother, too. I'm not a day shift person. I wake up grouchy every morning, and it takes me at least three hours to fully wake up. I would have been late to work every morning if I'd take a day shift. So I worked graveyard most of the time until the kids grew up a little bit. All this time, so you're working, you're the breadwinner, thank goodness you got your mom. I had my mother and and a great aunt who were my only babysitters. My children were never babysat by strangers. That was a big help off 
to having to work at all because sometimes I worked as many as three days. I mean, three jobs because I was also a Hawaiian entertainer. I worked with an entertainment group here in Sacramento and my sheriff once told a news reporter that he had the only hula dancing cop in town on his... <laughs> so tell me about that. So you worked with a dance troupe? Yes. And, and sang and danced Hawaiian entertaining. Wow. Do you remember a nightclub called the Zombie Hut? No, but I'm not from, I'm from Fresno originally. Okay. But tell me about the Zombie Hut. The Zombie Hut was a, a nightclub, dinner house and nightclub on Freeport Boulevard that was owned by someone who really admired the Hawaiian Islands. And the, the whole thing was decorated like a Hawaiian theme and they had live music and stage show and I worked the weekends. Wow. I had to have special written permission from my sheriff in order to do this because this was a place that served alcohol too, you know, but they, and then I also did extra gigs like somebody would have a luau and they'd hire a, a show to come over. And so we did. So I was a cop and I was a hula dancer too. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah wow but, and you were just honestly blessed to have um your mom helping you oh good children. lord yes absolutely yes so cop hula dancer writer yeah so did you tell me about the writing because we're gonna well i started writing or i should say i started showing uh, evidence in that direction. When I was in high school, then literature teacher told me, literature teacher said, when you graduate, you ought to seek a journalistic career because she said, you, you write. I always got A pluses in anything I wrote through literature. And then I wrote my first story, a Christmas story for my youngest brother, who was at the time just three or four years old, because he's 14 years younger than I am. And I wrote my first story for him as a gift which, by the way, he still has, and he reads to his grandchildren. And I still have the original copy. So that started me on a story writing thing. But then once I became a single mom and working, I uh, didn't have time to do that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So later on, after the kids kind of grew up and the older ones went off, graduated and went on their own, I went back to my writing again. I've always liked to write poetry. And I do some poetry for sharing and some poetry is too personal. So it... Uh, I still enjoyed the writing so much that I just continue on. Tell me about this book that, that you're working on that you shared with me and that we're going to uh, put together for, for the public. Well, those stories were written incidences that actually did happen to police officers, not all the same police officer. But in writing them, I hesitated to identify anybody. It got a little too complicated that way. So I just created a cast of characters, wrote the stories as if they were excerpts on a TV show, like Blue Bloods, for instance. And each incident actually happened to somebody with one exception. There's only one story in there that is strictly something I created. And I refuse to identify which one that is. Some of those stories happened to me, some to my daughter, some to another friend. Uh, they actually happened to somebody. Maybe not exactly like I wrote them, but my characters became the person. So you've got one female officer there that's kind of the star of the show, and then she's got all the others that she works with. That's how the thing created, started out, was just documenting. Some of those incidences are pretty funny. They are. And it uh, was intended in the beginning to show that we're, we're vulnerable too. We make mistakes 
and we we actually enjoy our mistakes because they teach us things. A good incident was the kid with the was the guy with the swivel holster. I'm going to break here to read a small portion from chapter five. It's called Swivel Holster for Sale. Let me set it up. Officers were responding to a call, burglary in progress. Now, police were called by a neighbor and police were told to approach the house without lights and siren so the burglars wouldn't be tipped off. And now I begin reading from chapter five. Several blocks from our destination, I killed the siren. And then a few blocks further along, I doused the lights as well. Just before turning onto cold water, I shut off the headlights. We knew the address we were looking for was about midway on the block. So I killed the engine and we silently slid to the curb two houses short of that destination. We unhooked our lap belts and started to exit the unit. That is when our world fell apart. Kevin swung those long legs out of the unit and in one fluid motion followed with the rest of his body. Well, the seat belt got tangled in his swivel holster and before he could help himself, he was pitched face and belly down onto the pavement. Seeing him start to fall, I made a flying dive to try and grab him. Well, in those old squad cars, the emergency equipment was located on the steering wheel. As I reached out for him, my arm flipped the light switch to the on position. Realizing what I'd done, I abandoned my efforts at saving Kevin and dove back to shut off the lights, groping for the switch. I accidentally activated the siren. It all happened in seconds. So here we were, two houses from our burglary in progress, with lights and siren going full blast. And one of the responding officers, face down, in the street, trying to extricate himself from a seatbelt. It's fun to read them. Yeah, well, some of, the, some of them are pretty funny, and some of them are not so funny. You know, like the very introductory one makes reference to an incident that happened, actually happened to me in 1955. I was the victim of a attempted rape. Uh, somebody broke into my house and it has, I would call it a scar on my entire life. That, that's the, the first incident in there kind of makes reference to that. Uh, most of the time it's, it was anecdotal, the way I was written it, uh, they were writing. The relationship with the other, the two, the female cop and her partner. There's the female cop and then yeah. there's the partner who is... Who neither one of them exist. Latino. Yeah. Where did you get that from? Where do you get that relationship with that man? Well, I've known of people within our department who have had close relationships like that. In fact, I have at least one right now, he and his wife... Are, are very close friends, and I met him before I ever became an officer because at the time that I was a security officer, at that time, anytime I made a, an arrest of a female, when the police officer came out to pick up that booking, I had to go with him to the jail because it ha I had to be chaperone, in other words. So they would take me and my prisoner to the jail book my prisoner, and then take me back to my job. And that's how I first met this other officer, and then later his wife. 
And we formed a bond. And then after I became an officer, we ended up working together several times. And here I've been retired since 1992. And this man is still a big part of my life. He and his wife. We communicate um, weekly on the, uh, the only time I use email. That's the only time I use a computer is email. And on the phone or, you know, that we've just remained a close relationship. And I've known other people, officers, who kind of fit that description of some of those people that are in that, those stories. Mm-hmm. So they're, even though they're, the names are not the right names, I would say the description to closely follows some people I've worked with. When you think of the word partner and you watch cop shows, mm-hmm. you know, or that's what you think of as a partner. Yeah. You know, and that close relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's just a, a nice oh, yeah. relationship. And sometimes, like right now, I have, as I said, been retired for a good long time. But I maintain a, a, a couple of close relationships, too, with the, some of my former female officers. Patricia Razor Divlinson's life is filled with her family, friends, and many current and former cops, and her memories of being a hula dancer, and of course, her writings. As for the writing, she's got more to share. Stay tuned. Her book is called Another Night on the City Streets, Stories from the Police Blotter. It's available in print and on Kindle, on sale, on Amazon. I picked this music to pair with Pat's book. The music is called Covert Affair by Kevin McLeod. I'll share the link in the description. I love it. I love more. I'm Gloria Moraga. One-on-one. Please talk to each other. Please share. Please subscribe. <laughs>